Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, now's the time to grab those. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9. If you do not have a Bible with you this morning, look in the pew back in front of you. There's a blue one there. Uh, We'll be on page 765 of it. So you can just turn right to it and follow along with us. We want you to know that what we say is not our own ideas, but straight from the Word of God. It's good to be back uh, this week. I want to thank Adam uh, for filling in in my stead last week. And I, I listened to the podcast. He did a great job. And it was nice uh, to get away, get to go see Corinne's family for a little bit. And I'm um, thankful for all that you guys picked up in my absence last week. Well, growing up in the Parks household, uh, the original Star Wars trilogy, not those really terrible episode one through three ones, but the original one, four, five, and six, were some of the movies that we were actually allowed to watch. Right? So from a young age... Uh, I was in on the Jedis and the dark side and Luke and Darth Vader and on and on. And so when I heard last year that they were making uh, some new Star Wars movies, I was, I was excited to go. Well, you may have heard of it. It got released. Has anybody heard of this? There's a Star Wars movie out? No? It's made like a $5 billion already, right? Um, but it came out in the middle of December, which is the busiest time of year for me. Uh, and so one week passed and I didn't get to see it. And two weeks passed and I didn't get to go see it. And three weeks passed and I didn't get to go see it. And it felt like everybody that I knew who was going to go see the movie had already went to see the movie, right? And I'm one of those people who hate spoilers. I don't want to know anything about a movie before I watch it. So I was just terrified that someone was going to ruin this movie for me. And finally, last week, I was able to take some time off and I went and saw the movie. And don't worry, today's talk has absolutely nothing to do with Star Wars, okay? Um, but I bring, up, bring that up to tell you this, to present this hypothetical for you. Okay? Let's say hypothetically that halfway into the movie... I leaned over to Corinne and I said, you know what? This is a really good movie. Like, I've, I've really enjoyed it so far, but I just have this sneaky su- suspicion that it's not going to get better from here. So I'm going to cut my costs. I'm just going to go ahead and leave now. You want to come with me? I know, what, if, what if somebody suggested that you read a book and you pick it up and you start reading and halfway in, you're like, this is the best book I've ever read in my entire life. But you think to yourself, man, it can't keep this up, can it? I don't trust this book to keep getting better going forward, so I'm just going to stop right here where I am, and I'm not going to read anymore. Or men, you're at a restaurant, right, and the waiter lays before you the best steak you've ever had in your entire life. It's cooked just to your exact liking, perfect flavor. It's everything you want in a steak, and halfway through, you put your knife and fork down because you decide it just it can't stay this good. So instead of risking it, right, you stop halfway and you eat no more. And, and if you did any one of those three things, we would think you were crazy, and rightfully so. We'd rightfully ask you, why, why would you stop? It doesn't make any sense. And yet, yet I fear so many people do this with Jesus Christ. I fear that there are many in this room today who are doing this with Jesus right now. I fear that I do this with Jesus. See, this, since, since October, we've been going through this book called Acts as a church. And, and we see at the start, at the very start of Acts, Jesus hand his church their mission. That we are to be his witnesses. So wherever God places us, wherever he sends us, and wherever we go, we are to proclaim Jesus and carry his name and what he's done. And this is the gospel, okay? That's, that's a Christian term for the story of Jesus. That Jesus, that God himself became a human being in Jesus Christ. God came to us. He didn't have to. He did it. Right? He lived the perfect life that you and I could not live, and he taught us everything that we need to know about God and eternity. And Jesus then died on the cross, not for anything that he had done because he was perfect, but to pay the penalty for all the times that you and I have sinned and all the wrong that we've done. And three days later, he defeats death and he rises again. And then he promises that to all who turn to him, all who believe in him, that they will also defeat death and experience eternal life in heaven with him. 
And then we see in Acts, is what we've seen, that he sends his church out to share that story and go to the world and extend the great invitation of you just repent, which means you stop, you turn one day, you stop living for yourself and turn and live for Jesus and trust in him for your forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. He gives you those things. And from Acts chapter 2 to 2016, countless people from every generation, from nations all over the world, have accepted the invitation. They've given their lives to Christ. And in the midst of those people, there have always been those who embrace half of the biblical response to the gospel. Those who embrace half of what Jesus calls us to do in response to what he's done for us. And when we do so, we always do this. We always embrace halfway, mistakenly believing that we're getting the better deal than if we'd embraced all of it. And nothing could be further from the truth. Last week in in my absence, Pastor Adam took us through the first 20 verses of Acts chapter 9. And he challenged us to start the new year, right, and to continue throughout the year by remembering where we were and what it was like when Jesus first called us, when he first saved us, when he first redeemed us. Okay, and he made the argument that Paul would be unable to forget that the rest of his life, when, when, forget what we see happen to him in Acts 9, and if you read any of Paul's writing, you know that to be true. He just can't take his focus very long off of what occurred in Acts 9, and for good reason. Well, today, for our, the first time in our series, we're going we're gonna to listen to Adam. We're not going to move forward. Okay, we're going to stay right there where he was, because in this conversion of Paul, this life change that we see, we get a very clear picture of the two-tiered response to the gospel that Jesus calls us to. And I want us this morning to be challenged by the word today that we would, be, that we would commit to being a church and being, all being people who will not respond halfway to Jesus, but instead be people who will sell out completely to him. Now, in case you were like me and you weren't here last week, or if this story is new to you, I want to bring you up to speed and recap what we know so far. All the way back in Acts chapter 6, we're introduced to a man named Stephen. Okay, Stephen was a man who was just on fire for Jesus. And these, the Jewish leaders of that day have long wanted to get rid of Jesus and all his followers and all his church. And they're just sick of all this. And so they bring Stephen in on trial, claiming they, they, they claim that his belief in Jesus is causing him to lead people away from Judaism. And Stephen actually corrects them. He says that it's, a, it's the opposite, right? He tells them that, that all of Judaism and all of creation, for that matter, actually points to Jesus. It was all about him all the time, and they've simply missed it. Well, this doesn't go well, right? They, these, these leaders don't like being told they're wrong, so they drag Stephen out of the city, and they begin to stone him. But during this, we're told that they decide that the outer layer of their clothing, right, their cloaks, their, their coats, is just not giving them enough freedom to throw the stones hard enough. And so they take off their outer cloaks, and they give them to a young man named Saul, Right, Saul, who's this up-and-comer in the Jewish religious circles, and he holds their coats, we're told, and he gives approval of them murdering Stephen on the spot. Then in Acts chapter 8, we're told from that day on, Saul went out, through, went door-to-door through the entire city of Jerusalem looking for Christians. And when he finds them, he drags them out, men and women alike, and he throws them in jail. And this causes the Christians in Jerusalem to flee to all sorts of nearby surrounding areas. But this doesn't stop Saul. He moves on from Jerusalem to a different town, a different town, and going everywhere he can, breathing out murderous threats, we're told by Luke, against the Christians and, against the, and taking them as prisoners. And on one such assignment in Acts chapter 9, he gets permission to go to a city called Damascus. And he's going there with, with letters with the authority to arrest every single Christian there. But the thing is, when he's almost there, Jesus shows up. You see, that's the thing that people, uh, the people who persecute Jesus' church always underestimate. 
It's why they don't understand why more than 70 million people have willingly given their lives for Christ. It's why they don't understand that try as they might, put all the, the pressure and force on them, you'll never snuff out his church because he's God and he defeated death and walked right out of his own tomb. And once you do that, everything else is a walk in the park. And so Saul is on this mission to destroy Jesus' church. And as he's heading to this town to do this, Jesus shows up. But he doesn't come strolling up, right? He comes in this blinding light and knocks Saul to the ground. And he stands over him and demands, Saul, why, why are you persecuting me? Now listen, if you're in Christ this morning, I want you to hear that sentence. Listen to that attachment. Paul wasn't going, Saul wasn't going to Damascus to physically arrest Jesus. He wasn't going to Damascus to put Jesus in jail. Jesus is already sent into heaven. He's not there anymore. And yet Jesus says, why are you coming after me, Saul? Why are you persecuting me? Because those who I've called are mine. Why are you doing this? And you can imagine Saul in this moment, can't you? Because all, all this that he was doing, he thought he was doing in service to God. He thought he was doing to protect the one true uh, truth about God. And now God himself has interrupted him, knocked him on the ground and demanded, by the way, why are you persecuting me? And in his disorientation, right, Saul doesn't even know what's real anymore. And so he asks the most basic question, okay, who are you? Who are you, Lord? I, I, who am I talking to here? Because I thought I was on the right path. I thought I was serving God, but clearly I wasn't. So, so who is this I'm talking to? And then here's that name. The one name that to this point he dedicated his life to destroying. When he hears, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what to do. So Saul picks himself up off the ground and when he opens his eyes, he's blind. He can't see anything. So he's led into the city, and for three days, we're told he eats and drinks nothing. He's just praying because he's convicted, and he's mourning, and he's broken. And after three days, Jesus appears to a man named Ananias, and that's where we're going to zoom in a little. So look at Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 10. Acts 9, verse 10 says this. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered, the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. All right, so God tells Ananias, here's your mission, right? You go find this man named Saul. And I want you to put your hands on him, and I want you to pray for him so the sight might be restored. And Ananias has a really understandable reaction. See, there are times throughout the scriptures, all the Bible, that, that people begin to question a call from God. And God kind of calls them out for it and corrects it. He doesn't do this to Ananias here. Because what Ananias is thinking is completely reasonable. Because Ananias' question is, you want me to go to who? Are we talking about the same Saul, the, the, the man who's been attacking your church in Jerusalem, the one who's actually coming here with the authority to arrest me and all your followers, and you want me to walk right into the house where he's at and introduce myself? Listen, if we were in Ananias' shoes, we would have asked the same questions, but by the end of this story, we will see that God is unafraid and does not resist calling his followers to do very risky things. Listen to what the Lord tells Ananias in response to his concerns in verse 15. The Lord said to Ananias, go, just go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. He says, listen, Ananias, right? I, I know exactly who I'm telling you to go to. Yes, it's Saul, but you can go without fear because I've intervened. 
and I've got plans for this man. But I'm going to take the one who was your enemy and turn him into my spokesperson. And I've chosen him as my instrument. And he will carry my name to the Gentiles and to the nations who know nothing of me at this time. And he'll not just carry my name to the people there, but he will stand before their kings, who have counsel with their kings, and deliver my name and my message to them. And in addition to that, I'll have him return to his own people, those he stood side by side with, persecuting me, and he'll carry my name to them. You see, this right here, this is the stuff that the great stories and movies are made of. This is the stuff that the zealous parts of us uh, long for. It's the stuff that even the prideful parts of us dream for. Because I, I believe if I asked for a show of hands this morning of who would like to be God's chosen instrument, or if I asked for a show of hands of, of who wants to be used by God in some ridiculously mighty and awesome way, if I asked for a show of hands of who'd like to be used by God to stand before presidents and prime ministers and rulers and carry his name, I'd expect many hands to go up. Because who doesn't have that longing inside them? Who doesn't want to be used by God in some awesome and adventurous way? Who doesn't want to be used by God to create a bigger legacy and more lasting legacy than you could ever dream up on your own? Right. So make no mistake about it, right? This, what, what Saul gets here in Acts 9, is a prestigious calling on someone's life. Jesus is saying here that Saul will go from this day and he will go before his own people. He will travel all over the world and see sites that other people don't get to see. He will be given counsel with kings and rulers and he'll do all of it under the name of Jesus. This is a great honor and no, he doesn't deserve it in the slightest. Not at all. But you see, none of us do. Right? I, I, don't, I don't deserve a single calling on my life from God. There's not one mission, not one calling, not one leading, not one anything that I've ever done for him that I deserved to do. Psalm 8 points out for us this, that God shouldn't even waste a single thought on us. That's what we deserve. But, but not only does he think about us, he forms us and he created us and he placed us and he came for us and he died for us and he saves us and leads us and guides us and he places these calls in our lives and it's all by grace. We deserve none of it. So is it fair? Is it fair that someone who devoted their life to destroying the church, that they get the calling to be one of the most important people in the history of church? No, it's not fair. But we don't want fairness from God. Because if we got fairness from God, we'd all be in trouble. His kingdom runs on grace. His church runs on grace. God places and calls each of us right where we are because it is in that life, it's in that place, it's in that story that we can bring him the most glory. Did you know that? Do you know he has put you right where you are? He's put you in your life and in your place and in your story because it is right there that you can bring him the most glory. There's something else we have to recognize. To this point, it's all been good for Saul. I mean, think about this as a setup. He's going somewhere to destroy God's church, and he gets confronted by God himself on the way there. That could go really terribly, right? Jesus would have been well within his rights to just strike Saul dead on the spot, but instead he scares him and then sets him straight. And then he hears Saul's prayers, and he sees his repentance, and he forgives his sins. And Jesus sends one of his followers to pray with Saul and restore him sight and give him a brand new name, Paul. Because he has chosen, he has chosen for Paul a great mission, a life calling beyond what he can imagine. And Paul will travel this world carrying the name of Jesus. It's all good. It's all good. But then Jesus keeps talking. As he has a habit of doing in the scriptures. Right when we think everything is good and perfect, he just keeps talking. Because he has something more to say. Look what he says in verse 16. 
I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. What was that part? You know, the whole carry my name, go all over the world, go to Gentiles and Jews, stand before kings, you're my chosen instrument. That all sounded really good, but what was the end there? I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So you have a feeling, right? We talked about this. If I asked this morning, and we were all completely honest, that if I asked who wants to be a chosen instrument of God to do something awesome, hands would go up. But then if I asked who wants to be shown by God how much they must suffer for Christ, then not as many hands would be in the air. But you see, I just can't be convinced that this calling is for Saul alone. Now, I know, I know that God's a unique and creative God. I know that the plans that he has for me are different than the plans that he has for you, and they're different than the plans he had for Saul. And there will always be aspects of our individual walks with Christ that will be unique to each of us. But there are also overarching calls in the scriptures that land on all of us. And to help you understand this, I'm gonna, I want you to take in, go in your Bibles and turn back two books, okay? Go back to the left to the book of Luke, and we're going to be in chapter 9. If you're in one of those blue Bibles, that'll be page 723. Okay? Luke is actually the first half of Acts. They're the same volume. They're just split up in our Bible into two different books. Okay, so this is all one continual story. And I want us to look at the moment in Luke 9 when this truth would have first hit Jesus' disciples. Okay, there's this big moment to set up the scene of what we're going to look at today. There's this big moment in Luke chapter 9 and verse 18 where Jesus begins to ask his disciples a series of questions. These are the men that are going to lead the church that we're reading about in Acts. And he asks them first, so who do you say, who does everyone else say I am? And they give him a list of answers. You know, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say prophets, on and on. And then he asks them, who do you say that I am? And he gets really personal with it. And Peter answers, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And Jesus confirms it to be so. And then he tells them not to tell anyone at that time. But before we move on from that, because Luke immediately moves on from that in telling the story, we must understand what actually occurred in that moment. Because the Jewish people, of which the disciples were a part, they were all Jewish men, they had waited hundreds of years for the Messiah or the Christ. And all of their hope as a nation was in the promise that God would send his Messiah, that this promised Christ would come. And their belief, though it was mistaken, their, their, the, the popular belief was that the Messiah would establish Israel as the most powerful and affluent nation on the earth. That Israel would rule the earth, that it would overthrow Rome and do everything that Rome was doing. And so when these men, right, these disciples hear Jesus confirm, yeah, I'm the Christ, in their minds, this is the greatest news ever. It is the greatest news ever, but not for what they were thinking. Right? Because in their minds, this sets in place a plan, right? It's in motion. Before long, Israel will overthrow Rome, and Jesus will set up his earthly kingdom. And guess what? They get to be in the inner circle. Since they've tied their cart to Jesus, they'll, they'll be rich and powerful and influential. Their lives will never be the same because they've hit the jackpot. They've tied themselves to the Messiah. So they're on the fast track to wealth and prosperity and ease. But then Jesus just keeps talking again. Right? Look what he says in verse 22. Right after telling them that he is the Son of Man, he's the Messiah, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Wait, what? That's not in the plan. That's, that's, not, wait, that's not what happens to the Messiah, right? He's this ruler that establishes this awesome kingdom. What's this about suffering and being killed? 
This hits them so hard that Matthew and Mark tell us the same story in their Gospels, and they tell us that Peter actually grabs Jesus, pulls him to the side, and begins to rebuke him. You've got it all wrong, Jesus. This is never going to happen to you. Just a side note of advice, not a great idea. Okay, I wouldn't suggest that. Jesus calls him Satan and tells him that the only thing he's thinking about are things of men. Things of man, comfort and security and wealth, and he's not thinking about things of God. So disciples here, make sure you see that they would be reeling. You could almost picture them trying to wrap their minds around that the hope they had their entire life has just been flipped on its head. And so they're going to be asking, wait a minute, if you as the Messiah, if you're not here to establish an earthly kingdom, but you actually came to be handed over to be killed, what, what does that mean for us? Well, Jesus keeps talking again. Look at verse 23. And he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. He tells them, guys, I, I chose you for this. You are my chosen instrument. But not to be governors or rulers or wealthy or influential. Not to have a really easy life. No, in fact, if you want to come after me, you want to be my disciple, there's some things you have to do. And first, you must deny yourself. It's just simply against the rules to live for yourself anymore. Which means that you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you voluntarily lay down your wants. Right? It means you voluntarily lay down your wishes and your preferences. It means you don't just do whatever you want to do. It means you don't demand others to do just whatever you want them to do. It means that you actually have to do things that at the time you won't want to do. It means you actually defer to what other people want or what other people need when necessary. It means you actually have to live this life recognizing that this place doesn't revolve around you. This life is not about you. Secondly, it means Jesus says you must take up your cross. Now we've watered down the cross. Right, we put it up all over the place. We wear it as jewelry. But man, when Jesus was talking in Luke 9, no one had a cross in their necklace. Because a cross was an instrument of death and intimidation. Right, whenever there'd be an uprising, this is when Rome was at its highest power, okay? So whenever there'd be an uprising, this is what the Romans would do. They would squash the uprising, and then, then they would line the, the, the entrances to the city with crosses, Okay? And then they would hang those who rebelled against Rome on the crosses and would leave the bodies there for weeks to make sure people understood what happened to you if you ever dared cross the Roman Empire. And so when Jesus says that you are to take up your cross, that would invoke a really strong reaction of fear and intimidation. And he's telling them that to be my disciple, you sign up for one. Think about that. You sign up for cost. You sign up for suffering. You sign up for hurt and loss. I mean, you volunteer for it. To take up your cross means that you choose that cross, and that's what Jesus requires of his followers. And the third thing Jesus says is that you are to follow me. And here's what I think he means by that. I think he means we follow him. Deep, right? But listen, we, we try to explain our way out of this, don't we? And we should just assume that he meant what he said, that we are to follow him. And the, and the, the road that he walked is the road of lowering yourself. It's the road we're told about in Philippians 2, that though being God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he took on the form of a man and was obedient to death, even death on the cross. Just kept going lower. And the one who walked on that path looks at us and says, follow me, come on down. He goes on to say that if you try to protect yourself, 
You try to protect your comfort. You try to protect your security. You try to save your life. You're going to lose all of that, which honestly isn't that profound. Okay? Jesus said some really profound things. This isn't one of them. Because think about it. Wait long enough, you'll lose everything you have, even if you try to keep it, especially if you try to keep it. But whatever you're willing to give up for him, up to and including your life, Jesus says that you get to save. That you'll find. So here's the thing about modern Christianity, right? A lot of times we present the gospel and we ask for a response, but we don't ask for the whole response. So we have all kinds of people littered throughout who say to Jesus, yes, Jesus, I want your forgiveness, right? I want your grace. I want you to pay the death. I want your death to pay my price for all my sins. Jesus, you are my fire insurance. You're my get out of hell free card. Cool, thanks for that. And then they just go on with their lives. And they don't go any farther than that. There's a whole other camp out there that's mind-numbing. I just can't understand it, how this camp keeps gaining popularity. But they twist the scriptures and misrepresent Jesus in the gospel. And they tell you that God's design is for you to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous all of your days. And if you're not one of those things, then there's something wrong with you or you don't have enough faith. Which is always ironic to me because whenever one of these guys finishes their talk, they ask for money. Which means they must not have enough faith, Right? But I digress, right? The end result of this teaching is a whole lot of people who want free forgiveness from Christ and then expect him to bless them on top of it with riches and worldly success and a life to be super easy and comfortable. And both teachings are in error. Both teachings cheapen and lessen the gospel and cheapen and lessen what Jesus actually has for you. The gospel that tells you that Christ died for you because you needed it. You needed him to, right? You, you sinned. You rebelled. You were wrong. I, I sinned. I rebelled. I was wrong. And we were all in debt to God, and we needed Jesus to save us. So that's why he died. And when we turn to him, we are to surrender our entire past to him. This is the part that we get. We, we understand this part. We were to take our sins and our failures and our rebellions and our idolatry and our lust and our anger and our selfishness and pride and, and everything, and we are to wash it all, ask him to wash it all in the blood that he shed for us on the cross. And when you surrender that past to him, he saves you, he redeems you, he makes you pure and spotless and the holy in the eyes of God, not because you're righteous, but because he is. Not because you're awesome, but because he is. But you see, it doesn't stop there as much as we'd like it to. Because the response to what Jesus did is not just for you to give him your past. You're to surrender to him your entire future as well. Not just your future sins. You're going to need that grace. You're going to continue to sin, by the way. Spoiler alert. You're going to need him to continually forgive you. But you also need to give him all of your plans and all of your dreams and all of your hopes and all of your ambitions. And you surrender those to him, laying them at his feet. Now, he might leave some of those in place okay, because he created you the way he made you, a certain way with certain patches and interests. He might change every single one of those things. But you see, it's his prerogative to do so, not yours. If you're following him, here's the guarantee. If you're following Jesus, he will lead you places you do not want to go. If you're following Jesus, he will lead you places where you get to deny yourself and take up a cross. And the calling on your life is to follow anyway. The calling on this church is to follow anyway, to to achieve our mission of being his witnesses, to achieve our calling to multiply, we must follow. 
We must loosen the grip that we have on our calendars. We must loosen the grip that we have on our homes and our kids and our wallets and our possessions and our five-year plans and just lay those things at the feet of Jesus. We must tell Christ, where you go, I follow. Whatever you have for me, I'll take it. Whatever it is, Lord, I surrender to you and your plan. As you see, the gospel of Jesus is not a monopoly game. You don't get to skip past hell and get handed $200 and go on your way acquiring whatever you want. The gospel of Jesus, right, is, is the response that Jesus looks for. No, the response is that he demands is that we hand him the keys. We give him control. You and I and all who claim Jesus are called to live as people who go about our days with a yes on the table before him. So that before he even asks us for anything, the answer is already yes. Now there's risk in that, right? The risk is that we surrender all control. The risk is that we let go. The risk is that he has the prerogative to ask for anything that he wants. But a true follower of Christ cannot say to Jesus, well, I just can't leave my family. I just, I just can't leave this area. I just can't take that low salary, God. I just can't go somewhere I don't know the language. I just can't reach out to that person and they hurt me. I just, I just can't love that. I just can't do that, Lord. So what I love about Ananias is that he went. He asked all the right questions. Yeah, are we, are we talking about the same Saul here? Yeah, we are, but you go. You go ahead and go, Ananias, because I got plans for him. And he went. What I love about Saul is that he responded all the way to Jesus. Where he, first he surrenders his past and his rebellion and his sin to Jesus, but he also surrendered his future. And as we go through Acts, you're going to watch this future. And I'll give you some, some heads up. We're going to see him whipped five times. We're going to see him shipwrecked three times. We're going to see him stoned. We're going to see him in prison. We're going to see him beaten. And eventually he gets beheaded. And in the middle of all of it, he writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In the middle of all of it, he writes, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In the middle of all of it, he writes, I want to know Christ and share in the power of his resurrection and I want to share in his sufferings. He's signing up for them. Because you see, Jesus actually meant it when he said that those who give up their lives for him will find them. He meant that. We think that we're saving ourselves. We think that we're saving ourselves when we ask Jesus to forgive us but avoid giving him control and avoid the cost. In all actuality, we are ripping ourselves off. We are walking out in the middle of the movie. We are putting the fork down halfway through the stake. We're missing out on what he has in store for us. But what, because whatever Christ leads us to, it always, always, always gives us more of him. And the message of the gospel is resounding that Jesus is always enough, that he is always worth it. So today, hand the keys over. Surrender your control. Place your yes before God. Whatever, whatever box you've given him that he must stay within those parameters, God will do anything as long as it's within this. Smash that thing today at the foot of the cross. And then follow. And when he asks, I tell you, when he asks and when he calls, it will, it will feel like he's asking for too much. It will always feel like he's calling you to go too far. It always feels like he's asking you to give up too much. It always feels like he's leading you to too big of a change. Say yes anyway whatever he asks whenever he asks wherever he asks however much he asks commit to being someone who simply lays a yes before him
Do not resist his calling. Do not resist his leading. Do not resist the cost because in all of it you get Jesus. Nothing's greater than that. Let's pray. God, you say in your word that your thoughts are not like our thoughts and your ways are not like our ways. Just as high as the heavens are above the earth, there's so much higher your thoughts and ways than ours. And God, honestly, we give thanks for that. Sometimes it causes us hesitation. Sometimes it causes us worry. Sometimes it causes us fear because your plans do not match ours. They just don't. Because you lead us places we don't want to go. So Lord, help us cling to the promise that wherever you take us, you'll be there. Wherever you take us, you will bring good out of it. Whatever you're asking for, you have plans and intentions, designs far greater than we could imagine. God, may we become a people in this room. May we all become a people who just say yes to you. Lord, maybe there's one in here today who's never surrendered their life to Christ. They've never had their sins forgiven. They've, to this point, they've just lived for themselves. May today be the day they just say yes. Yes, Jesus, save me. Yes, take my past. Take my future. It's yours. God, maybe, maybe there's people in this room right now who've, who've given you their past, but they've clung on. They've, they're clinging to something in their life, some part of the future they want to control, they want to have God, may today this to be the day they say yes. You've asked for it maybe for years. They've never surrendered. God, gave it, let them give it up today. May we be people who all around this room, God, that whatever you're putting the finger on in our hearts and our lives, we be people that just surrender to you right now. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Thank you.